Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 1009. Well, let's hear the word of the Lord together and then we'll pray. Verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience Desiring to act honorably in all things, I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Let's pray together. Father, uh, it is a very sobering thing for me to consider this morning As we look at a text that tells a gathering of your people to submit and to obey their leaders. And it's sobering because I recognize my own limitations. All of the elders here recognize their own sin that they have to overcome. And so to be teaching a people to obey us and submit to us is a very sobering thing. And I approach this with with fear and trembling. Asking for you to continue to grant us humility to lead the people here. At the same time, I know that this is 
your word that must be taught to the church and it is good for us to hear it. So lead us now that by following our leaders we might also follow Christ more closely and mature into his likeness. And do this, Lord, while we wait for that city that is to come. In Jesus' name, amen. What ought we to do with church leaders? What ought we to do with church leaders? Based on your experience, or maybe some recent headlines, you might answer, well, that depends. What sort of leaders are we talking about? And you'd be right to ask for that clarification. When it comes to church leadership, the New Testament presents a fairly nuanced answer. Uh, It, of course, sets before us the ideal, what, what leaders ought to be. We might recall Ephesians 4, where we observe Christ's care coming through the men that he offers as gifts to the church. We could recall Acts 20, where Paul, through tears, charges the elders with what caring overseers must be. From the lists in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, we could piece together their exemplary character. Or maybe if we, if we traced the theme, the, the theme of shepherd throughout the scriptures, these men must lead the flock like the one who leads us beside still waters. At the same time, other places in Scripture indicate that what some once thought to be good leaders could end up turning false, leading others astray, Acts 20.29. 1 Timothy 5.24 says that the sins of some leaders are clear at the outset. You can see them plain as day. But the sins of others, it says, appear later. Instead of servant-hearted leadership, others could abuse their authority. Why else would Peter have to charge elders not to be domineering over those in their charge? 1 Peter 5.3 With all the ways some leaders have strayed from the ideal, it's no wonder that even some Christians remain suspicious when it comes to church leaders. Then again, we also live in a culture that champions self-determination, self-autonomy, a kind of individualism that recoils at authority of any kind. For these folks, it's not that they prefer submitting to good authorities over bad ones. They don't want anyone telling them what to do at all. It violates their rights and their freedom to do as they please. And add to that cultural excess the internet and social media where you can become your own authority about anything. Rather than wise counsel from the Holy Spirit, a text like Hebrews 13, 17 might sound more like fingernails grating against a chalkboard. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Yes, even you, you Baptist libertarian, you... 
So, what ought we to do with church leaders? How should they lead us? How should we respond to their authority? Is there a way for this to work well, even with leaders who are imperfect and limited and who, like you, struggle with their own sin? What does a healthy relationship between the church and its leaders look like? And I think Hebrews 13 helps answer these questions. Where those leaders are faithful to Christ and His new covenant, we must imitate them. We must continue in their teaching. We must submit to them. And we must pray for them. I want us to look at verses 7 to 9. And then verses 17 to 19. You will notice how they both start with similar commands. Remember your leaders. That's verse 7. And then verse 17... Obey your leaders. They function like bookends around this final series of commands. And we'll return to verses 10 to 16 next time. For now, let's focus on what we ought to do with church leaders. You may have noticed that the leaders in view are godly ones in this passage. They spoke the word of God. They have faithful, imitatable conduct. Uh, They keep watch over the flock. There are other passages in Scripture that show us how to respond to wayward and oppressive leaders. This one teaches us how to respond to godly, faithful leaders. When you pieced together the context, it seems that God has blessed these Christians here that He's writing to with with faithful leaders. Uh, Some of these leaders have moved on or died Um, Others are are still there. The the writer of Hebrews knows them. He's familiar with their teaching. It seems that that he used to be among them, but now he's away, now writing back to them. These leaders have been preaching the new covenant in Christ, but some of the members are starting to waver. They're on the verge of abandoning Jesus for their old ways in in Judaism. And the writer of Hebrews has given them all the compelling evidence on why they shouldn't do that. That was chapters 1 to 12. Jesus is better. Now he turns to some of the good examples of faithfulness in their leaders. And he says, hey, follow them, church. Those leaders of old or those leaders that you have now... Follow them as they follow Christ. Notice how he puts it in verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. That's the first answer to our question, what ought we to do with church leaders? Where they follow Christ, remember and imitate them. Where they follow Christ, Remember and imitate them. Now, it's possible in verse 7 uh, that he has present the present leaders in, in view. You, you could translate it, those leading you, that is currently leading you. The same wording also appears in verse 7, obey your leaders. And then again in verse 24 where he says, greet all of your leaders. So it could be the, the ones that are currently leading them. But it's also possible to view the leaders in verse 7 as past leaders. Okay, leaders who have either died or moved on to other church planting works. They're gone. And 
Now he's calling them to remember them, remember those guys. He identifies them as those who spoke to you the word of God. And if you flip back to chapter 2, verse 3, these might be the very same men who initially brought them the gospel. Do you remember them uh, from from Hebrews chapter 2, verse uh, 3, where he says um, that it was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. Okay, so you got Jesus who teaches some men, and then they teach us, which is the writer of Hebrews and that group of Christians that he's now writing to. All right, so it could be these guys that he's referring to in terms of who you ought to remember and imitate. Whoever they are, these leaders establish the church of God on the word of God. Good leaders will do that. The word of God is a theme that permeates Hebrews. Even from the very outset, long ago, he says, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So the word of God not only entails all the the Old Testament reveals about God and his plan for the world, it especially includes how God fulfills that plan in the person and work of Jesus. And and he's saying that they built the church on God's self-revelation in Scripture and in Jesus. These leaders also conducted themselves according to that word. The whole of their lives was characterized by serving Jesus. Verse 7 says, By considering the outcome of their way of life, imitate their faith. It could also be imitate the faith. At the end of verse 7. Meaning, if you, if you want to know what a life gripped by the message of Jesus looks like. If you want to observe how the gospel transforms a person. And how it takes root in their household. And in their relationships with others. If you want to see that, then consider the outcome of their conduct. Of their way of life. Look at how these leaders did life. Look at the way they served and sacrificed. Consider the way they loved and led. Consider their humility and where they placed their hope and then imitate them. Many of you know that I enjoy working with wood. It's a valuable craft and and I'd like to pass it on to my children just as my dad taught me. And growing up, you know, he would explain to me what the various tools did. And he would talk to me how to construct this or that, and he'd sketch plans for what he intended to build. But necessary to him passing along that trade was me watching him actually do it and having him position my hands on the router or having him drill one hole and then having me do the next. I considered his skills, and then I learned to imitate them. And that's how we're supposed to respond to godly leaders. God doesn't give us leaders to forget them. They are gifts to remember and to imitate. They become concrete examples of what it looks like to follow Jesus. 
for us elders, that becomes a, a sobering reminder. Our conduct should be worth imitating. Just like Paul could say with a clear conscience to the church, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We elders ought to be able to stand before you and say the same. For the church as a whole, you're called here to remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, and then imitate the faith. In some sense, that could feel rather daunting. I mean, just think of where we've been in Hebrews and put yourself in, there, in, in the shoes of, of, of these Christians who are, who are reading this, right? They've already endured one season of persecution. They've had their property plundered. Some of them have been thrown in prison. They're thinking about giving up. This is hard until this leader who used to be with them now writes and says, don't do it. Jesus is better. Stay faithful to the end. Consider your leaders and imitate them. And they're going, yeah, we know what happened to those guys. Life sucked for them. Prison is not fun. Having your property plundered isn't fun. Life was hard for them, not easier. When they chose to follow Christ, things got tough. And maybe you've felt some of what they might have felt. I mean, more and more, our culture is turning antagonistic toward Christianity. Perhaps circumstances have made you weary. You've sacrificed and sacrificed and then sacrificed more. For somebody you loved and receive nothing in reciprocation. And then you read in your Bible one morning how Paul suffered and labored for the church till he had nothing left at times except the hope of resurrection. And God says, hey, you imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. Whew. Like, how do you keep going? Well, you keep going by leaning into verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is not some random doctrinal assertion. In fact, we need to be careful how we use it. Before his cross, Jesus was mortal. Do we then say, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever? Mortal yesterday, mortal today, mortal forever. No. That's not what this means. That would be heresy. More specifically... It's related to who Jesus was for these leaders. It's very closely tied to verse 7. It's related to who Jesus was for these leaders who've gone before them. Who Jesus is for the church in the present. And who Jesus will be for those who come after this church. The reason they can follow in the footsteps of their leaders is because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is our righteousness when we fail. He is our strength when we are weak. He is our help when temptation comes. 
He is our access to God's throne in times of need. He is the one who sympathizes with us. He is the one who prays for us at God's right hand. He is the king directing history to God's appointed end. In other words, the Savior, the same Savior that he was for these leaders of yesterday in his resurrection power and covenant glory, he is that same for you today. And he will be the same for the church that comes tomorrow. If he helped them endure to the end, if he helped them live faithfully through suffering, he will surely help you. So think here in terms when he says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever as Jesus Christ in his resurrection power and new covenant glory, which works on your behalf, just as it worked on behalf of those leaders, just as it's working on behalf of us now, and just as it will work on behalf of those who come after us. A second answer to our question, what ought we to do with church leaders? Where they center you on the grace of the new covenant, never shift away. Where they center you on the grace of the new covenant, never shift away. Look at verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now, people speculate about what's meant here by foods and being devoted to them. I mean, foods come up in a variety of contexts in the New Testament. Uh, You know, debates about what's clean and unclean and meat offered to idols and quarrels over feasts and whether you should eat meat at this one or not and asceticism. There's a variety of, of ways that food is addressed in the New Testament. Within Hebrews, though, chapter 9, verse 8 through 10 is likely our most helpful clue. He's contrasting the old covenant shadows with the superiority of the new covenant. And he says this in chapter eight, I mean chapter nine, verse eight. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, that is the old arrangement under the law. Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. What's he saying? The old regulations for worship under the law of Moses, some that dealt with food, It all existed as a symbol that was pointing forward to a better age, to a time of reformation. And until that time came, the old order was seriously lacking in two big ways. You had no access to God. And you couldn't have your guilty conscience taken away, cleansed. Access to God's presence wasn't open for the people. The sacrifices couldn't perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Access to God and perfecting your conscience came through Jesus Christ alone. When he died for our sins and rose from the dead and was seated at God's right hand, he alone opens the way to God and cleanses your guilty conscience. That's what all the other sacrifices pointed to. That's what the old order was anticipating. And now it was here. 
So going back now to chapter 13, verse 9, to devote yourself to foods was to abandon Christ's sufficient work and return to the old regulations that can't give you access to God and that can't perfect the conscience of the worshiper. That's not how they learned Christ, though. Their leaders, it says, spoke to them the word of God. Their leaders grounded them in the grace of the new covenant. And throughout Hebrews, it is the grace of the new covenant that changes the heart, isn't it? It gives us a new heart. Through the new covenant, God writes his law on our hearts and they become new. Through the new covenant, God gives us access to his throne of grace in times of need. Through the new covenant, God God gives us the, the Holy Spirit who then makes us more and more like Jesus. And so where your leaders center you on the grace of the new covenant, don't abandon it for some other kind of strange teaching. I mean, Wes did a remarkable job last week centering you on the grace of the new covenant, and he did it from Psalm 13. And then showed how our, David's cries, which sound a lot like our cries, found their answer in Jesus Christ. Never abandon that kind of teaching. The grace of the new covenant is our only hope. Notice too that he says diverse teachings in the plural. There's all kinds of teachings that abandon God's grace in the new covenant. Maybe it's various forms of legalism. Sometimes it's not beyond us to raise our personal preferences to a level that says our ways are more acceptable than your ways. Or what he or she deserves for their sins is worse than what I deserve for mine. Sometimes it's an overemphasis on dress codes and external behaviors. Maybe you think attending a Reformed Baptist church makes you better, more acceptable to God. Baloney. Other times it's a moralism that builds on Christian principles but neglects the grace of the new birth and the centrality of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it comes in the form of nationalistic pride and a desire to commend what's good about our nation. Some have equated godliness with patriotism, loyalty to the flag, even where that loyalty skews one's devotion to Christ. Within some Christian subcultures, it's easy to believe or to act as though God's ultimate plan for all the nations is inextricably bound up with the fate of the United States. Not only does this view often misapply the Old Covenant to America, but it replaces grace with a political alliance. Or, as another example, consider what some have called the social justice movement. In a desire to seek justice in society, a desire commended by Scripture, I might add, some have attempted to synchronize the gospel of grace with divisive ideologies as observed in identity politics, intersectionality, and critical theory. These teachings deny our nature as image bearers. They reject our common identity in Adam, and they often redefine justice to suit their own political cause. Moreover, they look to effect change by a political activism devoid of the grace and the forgiveness that we find in the cross alone. Here's another one. 
When someone confesses their sin to you, is this your opportunity to pounce? Baha! You admitted it! Is this the gotcha moment? And then, instead of full and free forgiveness, kind of like the full and free forgiveness you have received in the cross, instead of the full and free forgiveness, you start reducing that person to their sin. It becomes who they are in your eyes. When grace of the new covenant says they are new creations. Or, according to Titus 2, grace also teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. The grace of the new covenant actually changes the heart. It saves us as we are, but it doesn't leave us as we are. Any teaching that says otherwise is teaching a different kind of grace than that of the new covenant. So be careful, brothers and sisters. There are various teachings that depart from the grace of the new covenant. And we must remain alert and vigilant in our study of the truth. Otherwise, we too will be led away by teachings alien to the gospel of grace. So where your leaders center you on the grace of the new covenant, never shift away from it. Only by grace are we pardoned and cleansed from sin. Next, where they administer Christ's care, obey your leaders and submit to them. Where they administer Christ's care, obey your leaders and submit to them. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So God, God puts leaders in place to keep watch over your souls. Now, by soul, think of the whole person here. Care for your inner self is crucial, but our care would fall way short if it didn't also tend to your whole person. Okay? Your mind, your emotions, your physical rest, the way you use your body to serve others or protect others. I don't mean we're telling you exactly what to do in every moment, but good care will take these matters into consideration. Speaking of that care, the word keeping watch could also be translated be alertly concerned about, and it carries the idea of like these guys are losing sleep at night to make sure you're cared for. We are to do this as those who will give an account to Jesus one day. How sobering to think that I will give an account to the risen Lord Jesus one day for each and every one of you. Name by name, face by face. This is serious business. God paid for the church with his son's own blood. His people are precious and leaders must treat them so. Like the good shepherd, they too must lay down their life for the sheep. Not in the sense of atonement, of course, but in the path of love. The path of love will mean great sacrifice on the part of the leaders to see that the sheep persevere to the end. Where that leadership is present, obey your leaders and submit to them. 
That's a countercultural word, by the way. We live in a society that bristles at the mention of submission. And yet, Scripture is full of commands about submission. Submitting to governing authorities, submitting to one another in the church, wives submitting to husbands, children submitting to their parents, and also church members submitting to their elders. Notice that he also says, obey your leaders. Your leaders. Your, meaning the leaders over you in your local church, who know your name, who observe your interactions, who pray for, your, pray for you weekly, who, who are the ones keeping watch over your souls. With so many internet personalities and pastors with podcasts, it's easy for a Christian to be part of a church, but the primary voice they're listening to isn't their own pastor's. It's whoever they've chosen to lead them, quite apart from the ones who actually know them and keep watch over their souls. It's not wrong to listen to these other voices. Sometimes I listen to them. I read their books. But men like John MacArthur and Doug Wilson and Matt Chandler and John Piper are not your pastors. Obey and submit to your leaders. To obey and submit means listening to their advice carefully and then yielding to their direction and counsel. Show deference to their lead as they guide the church through tough situations. That doesn't mean checking your brain at the door, blindly following us into sin, but insofar as we ground our leadership upon the truth, Upon God's revelation, is saying submit to your leaders. Even more, he says, make their ministry a joy. Make it a joy. You can't see it as well in the ESV, but there's a purpose statement linked back to the command. Obey your leaders in order that they might do this. That is, keeping the ministry of keeping watch. In order that they might do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So it's to your advantage, it's, it's, it's to this church's advantage to submit to your pastors because it enables them to do their work joyfully and without groaning. Now, it's true that some pastors become rather crotchety just because they're not getting their way. That's a different kind of sin problem. That's just pride in the pastor. That's not what it's talking about here. I know faithful men who've labored well, who've poured themselves into the lives of the people, and yet the members ignore their counsel. They fail to see God's gift to them in their leadership. They treat them miserably and make their ministry most burdensome. And that shouldn't be so. To continue with that sort of disposition toward your pastors, this text says it's not good for you, it's not good to your advantage, and it's not good to the church's advantage. To hold them with unwarranted suspicion, 
to insinuate things that would erode trust quite apart from speaking with them face to face. To tell your social media following the way you think Christians ought to respond when your pastors have said the complete opposite. To reject their counsel outright because it doesn't fit your personal preferences. That's harmful to you and it's harmful for the unity of this church. Maybe an example would help illustrate what verse 17 is getting at. A couple years ago, we had a young person addicted to pornography. And they confessed their sin, which is great. Right? This is good. This means the gospel is taking root. They brought it into the light. But they still lacked self-control. And so based on the teaching in Sermon on the Mount of Jesus, which tells us to take radical measures to get sin out of our lives, right? Gouging out eyes, cutting off hands. We counseled them, just get rid of the devices that you're accessing this stuff with. Like your smartphone. Not forever, but until you gain greater self-control. And they rejected that counsel, and doing so is to their disadvantage. And I also remember the elder who gave that counsel weeping for his soul. Look, the groaning in this passage is not some sort of whininess, like, I'm not getting my way. This is not what's going on. It is grief that ties your stomach in knots for nights at a time because you know that sin is divisive and you know sin is deceptive and you know sin will destroy that soul. And you don't want it to happen. That's the idea here. That's why it's not to your advantage. On other occasions, though, we've we've met with brothers and sisters about what they post on social media. We've written articles about what to think through before you lob some grenade online. And yet still at times we learn of something a member posted online that doesn't square with that counsel. What a joy it is to hear when we might sit down with them and talk with that brother or sister, you know, and, and they say something like, you know, I never thought about it that way. I'll, I'll, I'll take that post down. Or, you know, thank you for that input. I'll clarify that point further. One time, Ben had to call me. You see, this is not an awkward sermon for me to preach because I have three pastors myself. It's the beauty of plurality of eldership. I'm preaching this for you, and I'm preaching it for me because I submit to Ben, Wes, and and, uh, Trey. So Ben has to call me one time. I posted something in a hurry on Twitter back when I had it. He calls me two minutes later. He says, hey, I think the way you worded that is going to be seriously misunderstood. 
Before he finishes explaining why, I'm taking it down. Why? Because I trust my elders. I believe Ben has my best interest in mind. He sees things that I don't see. He's caring for my soul and he's caring for the unity of this church. Yes, follow no man farther than he follows Christ. The elders of a local church don't have all authority. That belongs to Christ alone. At the same time, Christ did give the elders some authority to lead his church, and we try our best not to abuse that authority. Our authority works for the good of Redeemer insofar as it reflects the character of Christ and esteems his word. And wherever that's the case, the scriptures ask that the church submit and in so doing, uh, make it a joy for us to keep watch over your souls. And then last answer to our question. What ought we to do with church leaders? Where they need more grace, pray for them. Where they need more grace, pray for them. If there's one thing we're regularly aware of, it's how needy we are of God's grace. We, we cannot serve you in our own strength. The writer of Hebrews knew that as well. Listen to what he says in verse 18. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. Uh, that verb, to act there, if you go back to verse 7, it's the same word uh, when he says, consider the outcome of their way of life or their conduct. So, The verb to act in verse 17 is the same word as way of life or conduct in uh, in some of your translations back in verse 7. And so what he's saying is that he desires to continue in the same faithful conduct that the founders of that church had demonstrated for them. He wants to continue in the same faithful conduct as those leaders who first brought them the gospel. But in in order to do that, he needs prayer. He needs them to go before the throne of grace and ask for God's help. Leaders need so much prayer. Some of you not only pray for us regularly, but you let us know through cards and texts and uh, phone calls. And, or maybe you mention it to us at a gathering. Sometimes you stop us in the middle of what we're doing and pray, pray for us. So we are so grateful. Keep praying for us. We need so much grace to lead you. Leaders will also encounter specific circumstances for which they need, they need prayer. Look at verse 19. He says, I urge you the more earnestly to do this, that is pray, in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, according to verse 23, Timothy was in jail. And the writer of Hebrews was now with Timothy. So Timothy's just been released from jail. And they want to visit this church in prayer is God's means of accomplishing his purpose, even in something like getting these guys to the church that's in need. So in the face of trying circumstances, these leaders here need prayer. And we do too, brothers and sisters. The year 2020 brought with it uh, numerous hard circumstances, and we know you were praying for us. And the Lord heard your prayers and he helped us lead you through it. 2021 is now upon us. 
We don't know what kind of trials await us. But we do know God. And we do know that Jesus Christ has given us access to the throne of grace. And we do know that he will never leave us or forsake us, according to chapter 13, verse 6. So, please pray for us. What ought we to do with church leaders? Well, where those leaders are faithful to Christ and his new covenant, imitate them, continue in their teaching, submit to them, and pray for them. And may the Lord help us all grow up into Christ, who is the chief shepherd, chief pastor. Shall we pray now? Father, we are grateful for your grace. I pray that you would help us all to follow this text and make it part of our worship that is pleasing to you, part of our mutual love for one another. Lord, help us to be faithful in keeping watch over the people here that you've entrusted to our care. And where that care is lacking, Lord, bring that to our attention. Open our eyes that we may see more clearly and reflect the character of the one who leads us beside still waters. In Jesus' name, amen.